0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, a nightmare for exchange administrators as August updates fail to install. Also, the number of Citrix appliances being backdoored increases to almost 2,000, and FS Logics has been added to the base EVD image in Azure. For this and more, keep listening to this week's episode, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors. That includes Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage the lockdown applications, Java browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. Control Up, happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Security researcher group Foxit has uncovered a large-scale exploitation campaign of Citrix Netscalers in a joint effort with the Dutch Institute of Vulnerability Disclosure, where attackers have placed web shells on the appliances to allow future access. At the time of me scripting this episode of the podcast, the number of appliances affected was over 1,900. The group warns a patched Netscaler can still contain a backdoor, which is something I've also been warning about over the last couple of weeks on this podcast. But the good news is that there are now multiple different scripts you can use to perform an indicator of compromise check on your Netscalers, regardless of when the patch was applied. And Foxit have provided their own Python script that utilizes dissect to perform triage on forensic images of Netscalers. Also. This week, I saw Mandian have provided a bash script to check for indicators of compromise on live systems also. Foxit suggests if traces of compromise are discovered, it is strongly recommended to make a forensic copy of both the disk and the memory of the appliance before any remediation or investigative actions are done. If the Citrix appliance is installed on a hypervisor, a snapshot can be made for follow-up investigation. And if a web shell is found, investigate whether it has been used to perform activities. Usage of the web shell should be visible in the Netscaler access logs. And if there are indications that the web shell has been used to perform unauthorized activities, it is essential to perform a larger investigation to identify whether the adversary has successfully taken steps and moved laterally from the Netscaler towards another system in your infrastructure. So it's great, at least that there's those scripts to indicate whether or not your systems have been backdoored but that may only be the start of the journey for some companies because if they do discover those web shells, they then have to follow the garden path to rule out other systems in their network being compromised. Florian Grail also shared a PowerShell command that you can use to check your ESXi hosts, those are your VMware ESXi hosts, to see if they're running on systems that are vulnerable to the recently disclosed downfall vulnerabilities and exploit techniques that I covered on last week's episode of the podcast. So hitting you early in this podcast with ways you can check your systems to see if they've been exploited and are, are vulnerable to recent vulnerabilities. BleepyCapura.com this week reported on a two-stack-based buffer overflow vulnerabilities being tracked as CVE-2023-32560 that impact Avanti's Avalanche product, which is an enterprise mobility management solution designed for managing, monitoring, and securing a wide range of mobile devices. And these flaws are rated as critical with a 9.8 out of 10 on the severity scale, and are remotely exploitable without user authentication, potentially allowing attackers to execute arbitrary code on the target system without having to jump the fence of authentication. And no, this is not a case of me accidentally covering a story that I already covered on previous episodes last month. These Avanti vulnerabilities are new and were officially disclosed this month. Tenable researchers discovered that an attacker sending specially crafted data packets containing hex strings or a list of decimal strings separated by a semicolon can cause a buffer overflow due to a fixed-size stack-based buffer used to store the converted data. So they can then leverage this flaw to do all kinds of nasty things. And again, it does not require authentication, so this is one you'll want to patch as quickly as you can. We all saw how last month the Avanti vulnerabilities were very quickly exploited by the bad guys. On last week's episode of the podcast, I covered some of the Windows updates for August. And as usual, I mentioned that the news of fallout from these patches tends to trickle out in the two weeks following Patch Tuesday. And one such issue that was disclosed or covered this week is with the Exchange server updates, which reportedly failed to install on non-English operating systems. So that's one that definitely should have been caught during the testing from Microsoft internally. But I guess maybe they don't have a very uh, wide range of operating systems and language configurations they test against. Hopefully that's something they fixed after this mishap. Uh, but it's also been reported that customers need to perform additional steps after installing the August updates for the exchange servers to mitigate the recent CVE-2023-21709 vulnerability, uh, which seems to be angering some admins because it's quite a lot of work to get this patch implemented. And for some, at least in non-English speaking territories, they're already delayed in trying to test out this patch. In other reports of issues with recent updates, there were reports of issues with Microsoft Teams after recent updates, including the loss of copy and paste functionality and loss of the spell check feature. And I know internally in some of my meetings, people were complaining about some connectivity problems and just general performance issues within Teams. Well, members of the patch mailing group suggested that clearing the team's cache can fix at least some of these issues and that a subsequent team's update also fixed some of these issues too. So make sure you're on the latest version. And if that doesn't work, clear the team's cache to see if it fixes that. In some good news, as of August 8th, so just a few days ago when I recorded this, uh, the multi-session EVD which i believe is enterprise virtual desktop images in azure now come with the latest version of fslogix already installed this means that you can skip the hassle of installing or updating fslogix on your virtual machines and just enjoy the features right away this updates the installed version in the azure marketplace images to fslogix version 2210 hotfix 1 from FSLogix 2201 Hotfix 1. FSLogix is now also in sync with Windows and the Patch Tuesday release schedule. This means that whenever there is a new version of FSLogix, it will be released on the same day as Windows updates, and the Azure Marketplace images for Windows multi-session will always have the newest version of FSLogix from now on. Google's latest transparency report shows that 5 to 10% of traffic has remained on HTTP, allowing attackers to eavesdrop on or change that data. Google has been indexing HTTPS sites above HTTP sites for years, They've also implemented a HTTPS first mode, which upgrades sites to HTTPS. And if that fails, users have to confirm they want to visit an insecure site over HTTP. So that's a feature uh, similar to the Brave browser and what that has been doing for some time. And it's surprising to me, at least, that still there's up to 10% of traffic that's on HTTP. It was recently announced that VMware Cloud on Amazon Web Services, or AWS, is now available in the AWS Asia-Pacific Melbourne region. And they say that this brings the total number of VMware Cloud on AWS available regions in Australia to two, as it now includes Melbourne and Sydney, and eight across Asia-Pacific in total. I somehow completely missed the news a month ago, that Intel announced that they were pulling the plug on their beloved line of Nooks, which are the next unit of compute mini PCs that they've been producing. While this was bad news, it looks like there is some good news though. Intel confirmed that ASUS will receive a non-exclusive license to Intel's Nook systems and their product line designs, enabling them to manufacture and sell 10th to 13th generation Nook systems and develop future designs. This will enable ASUS to provide product and support continuity for Intel NUC Systems customers. ASUS will establish a new business unit called ASUS NUC BU. And I also read that as this is non-exclusive for ASUS, other vendors may also pick it up. Graham Cluley had an interesting article recently in which he claims the Lockbit ransomware gang has been unable to consistently publish stolen data due to limitations in their back-end infrastructure and available bandwidth. In their attacks, they steal very large amounts of data, which obviously if you want to publish that online, you will need significant storage in a high-end reliable provider. Graham suggests victims may be less inclined to pay the ransom given the fact the gang threatens to publish the data but often does not follow through because, again, as he reports, it seems as though they have restrictions in terms of infrastructure and they may not be able to publish all of that data consistently. So a very interesting conundrum they have themselves in. I'm sure they can't get a provider service very readily because people don't want to involve themselves with their criminal activities and then they have to build an infrastructure themselves which i'm sure they may be limited by there was an absolute nightmare i.t story in my home country of ireland this week one of the largest banks in the country started to have a total outage of their online services around 1 pm on tuesday that went on for over 10 hours during this time, customers reported being unable to use debit cards for payments, customers were unable to access their bank's online site or mobile app, and any transactions due to process on that day failed to process. The bank has not disclosed the cause, but have denied that it's a cyber attack, stating this was an internal IT issue. Where the story got even more crazy, is that someone figured out that during the outage, they could transfer 1,000 euros from their Bank of Ireland account to a Revolut account, even if they didn't have 1,000 euros in their Bank of Ireland account. They could then go to a Bank of Ireland ATM and withdraw the money. This started getting shared on social media and caught fire, and some fools believing they could get free money and started lining up at ATMs in some of the larger towns in the country. There was like tailbacks. At the ATMs with so many people trying to uh, do this trick or at least they thought it was a trick of course as we all know there is no such thing as free money and when the bank got the services back online they stated that all of those withdrawals would be posted to those people's accounts today meaning those who took the 1000 euros out either just took out 1000 euros of their own money from their account or They are now going to be overdrawn in their account, which will eventually lead to high costs for those customers, I'm sure. What a nightmare. TechNative.io had a fascinating article this week about multi-cloud's use for televising global events, with the article focusing on the popular Eurovision Song Contest, which gets over 160 million viewers each year. The article suggests that in the event that viewers stream the entirety of a show like Eurovision across their mobile devices, that more than 1.9 million terabytes of data would be used, which is approximately equal to about 23,000 Super Bowls of in-stadium data consumption. The article states due to the resource demand the global broadcast requires the deployment of multiple clouds all working in harmony with applications and workloads stored moved and managed across them all all the way through to the device the article outlines a need to bring the data close to the device being used by users for viewing it uh, which obviously different clouds servicing different regions could mean some users get their service from one cloud while those in other regions may use another. Eurovision is also highly interactive with people at home being able to vote and take part in discussions throughout the event. They have also modernized the broadcast with the use of drone footage and unique live shots that live and die on network latency to make the broadcast. So another reason to have that data close and also to use a multi-cloud approach. The article is very interesting and gives a look behind the curtain of such an event and it's eye-opening as to some of the uses and challenges of a multi-cloud approach and getting them to work in harmony. But the author, Richard Bennett, who is head of industry solutions and strategy for EMEA in VMware, makes a pretty convincing argument in favor of a multi-cloud approach, which of course, that's been a big push from VMware at the last VMware Explorer events. They are pushing the whole narrative and the idea of multi-cloud, uh, but it's not unique to them and it definitely does have some credence. So it was interesting to see this article. CMBC had an interesting article about a survey of 1000 executives and managers done by Envoy which showed that 80% of bosses regret their initial return to office decisions and say they would have approached their plans differently if they had a better understanding of employees' office attendance, their usage of office amenities, and other related factors. Larry Gadea, Envoy's CEO and founder, stated, quote, many companies are realizing they could have been a lot more measured in their approach rather than making big, bold, very controversial decisions based on executives' opinions rather than employee data, end quote. Some leaders lamented the challenge of measuring the success of in-office policies, while others said it's been hard to make long-term real estate investments without knowing how employees might feel about being in the office weeks or even months from now. As of July, 59% of full-time employees are back to being 100% on-site, while 29% are stated to be in a hybrid arrangement, and 12% are completely remote according to new data from the work from home research. Major names like Disney, Starbucks, BlackRock, and Zoom have been mandating a return to the office with Zoom employees being told recently that if they live within a 50 mile radius of a Zoom office, they need to come in at least twice a week. So geez, I wonder how they would have possibly been able to tell if employees would be unhappy with going back to the office. So, so frustrating. But anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, let's do this week's scripts, tricks, and tips. First up this week, there is a great blog post on msendpointmgr.com, which is a really great website, particularly if you're in the device management side of things. Uh, but the article is on the curious case of the missing OneDrive Sync app health reports, and this is by Morris Daly. And he says that there's a change required to get the health report data back again so if you are missing those health reports and you want them back check out this article for instructions on how to get that data back and an oldie well relatively oldie but still a goodie uh, damien van robes on Sistanddeploy.com shared a tool for an MDT custom profile selector, which is a PowerShell tool to select an inter- external custom settings.ini. So for those who use MDT as part of their automated build process, this might be worth checking out. And the awesome Tim Mangan had a blog post on signing packages using his TM Edit X tool and DigiCert's KeyLocker tools. So if you haven't come to grips yet with the signing of MSAX application container packages and you want a solution for that, check out this blog post by Tim. Scatterbrains also shared a blog post. It was actually a couple months ago, but it's how to turn ChatGPT and BARD into Windows desktop shortcuts. So it's actually a pretty cool idea. You know, you can create shortcuts to launch these progressive web apps. And why not hook in um, like Bard or ChatGPT, which can run over the web and just execute queries directly from these shortcuts. So it's a good idea. And finally, as I stated last week on the podcast, Uh, This week, I got to take part in a great discussion with my buddy Lee Jeffries, and I talked about my automated application packaging and patching solution, which is something I think I've alluded to on this podcast in the past, too, and it's something I shared and went over in the Cloud Paging user group uh, like a couple months ago. Uh, Well, I have genericized my script, and it is now available on my own personal GitHub repository, which is Rory And additionally, hopefully by the time this episode is published, I hope to have a blog post where I cover some of the updates that will be coming to this soon, as well as just give some information about the script itself in its current form. And as usual, absolutely everything I talk about on every episode of the podcast is provided in the episode page on my website. And you can find that at fivebytespodcast.com and you'll find the links for this episode with episode 295. You know, if you enjoy the podcast each week, I'd really appreciate if you rate the podcast on your podcast platform of choice and possibly tell your colleagues too who you think might get value out of listening to this. But that's it for me. Thank you all so much for listening.